imagine celebrating your success going on holidays having bonfire on the beach with your loved ones unfortunately most entrepreneurs experience burnout within the first year but what is it that makes others succeed i'm your host tajul khurana call me kk join me as we have fireside chats with experts who have insider secrets around how to rest rejuvenate recharge and be bonfire entrepreneurs hello and welcome to yet another episode of be bonfire entrepreneurs with your host kajal khurana you can call me kk our amazing guest today doesn't need an introduction he's eric edmeets but let me do the ritual of introducing him eric is an internationally recognized business speaker film producer and serial entrepreneur he has spent the last 20 years starting buying selling and turning around businesses in six countries eric's varied business background includes mobile computing medical simulation augmented reality gaming 3d camera engineering and hollywood special effects eric is also the founder of wildfit and the creator of both inception marketing and business freedom a business ownership methodology that empowers you to own a business that doesn't own you how awesome is that welcome to our show eric thanks so much for having me it's totally my pleasure and i'm super excited and nervous and delighted to have you so eric please tell our listeners about your journey how did you started your journey of being an entrepreneur you know it, it that's an interesting question because i think i started it many times you know like it's funny years ago i was doing this event in fiji with tony robbins and it's a longer story but the short version was is that my introduction was supposed to be translated into chinese and it got translated back into english and it got confused and so it it said normally it would say that i had started my first business and i sold it 9 years later but tony went on stage and instead because the translation he's like our next speaker started his first business when he was 9 years old and i thought <laughs> it was really funny like i didn't i 27 when i started my first business but then i started thinking about it he was right i did i started my first businesses back then you know like i um as a kid i would uh, i i grew up in eastern canada and when it was winter i was out there with my shovel knocking on doors shoveling sidewalks for people and when the fall came and the leaves were falling i was out there with my rake and garbage bags and i was raking up leaves for people and in the summer time when there wasn't any leaves or snow to you know then i was collecting seashells at the seafront and polishing them and selling them on the front step or doing Kool-Aid stands so i i think i started my life in entrepreneurship as a kid out of a mix of you know excitement and boredom and and it's really interesting cuz i don't really come from entrepreneurial parents uh, that said my mom's now an entrepreneur but back then you know she was studying social work over here and my dad was a lawyer over there and you know so there wasn't like a sort of entrepreneurial uh history in our family but something in me as a kid just made me want to you know go out there and create my own opportunities that's so amazing i remember uh, listening to one of your videos or watching one of your videos where you mentioned that you went to tony robbins seminars and then after that you were totally a different person on a monday morning when you went back to your office it changed your life so what was so inspiring in that seminar what had changed 
In my life, I've been really lucky to have a number of people that have an impact on me. And some of them have had an impact over the long term because they provide information, strategies, resources, modeling, that kind of stuff. What Tony was incredibly, is incredibly good at is really helping make shifts in people's habits, behaviors, and personality in the moment. So in my case, one of the things that happened at that stage is I was about 21 years old and I was going into my life with a number of weird, let's say, limiting decisions or limiting beliefs that were holding me back from my bigger potential. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that I learned from Tony was to look at those beliefs differently. And effectively, I guess the language I'd put on it now is to assess new meanings for the events that created those beliefs. And the strangest thing is beliefs that we have are not necessarily true, but they definitely act like filters through which we see the world. And that's like one of those things like I was just the other day, uh, yesterday, in fact, I was hosting a big call with a bunch of our clients and a couple hundred people on and, and we were talking about different things. And all of a sudden, one of the women says, well, you know, I don't even know how to meet a man because I don't believe there are any good men left. Oh my God. Okay. And I was thinking about that. I was thinking, well, first of all, on behalf of all men, I want to apologize for creating that impression because there are some less than suitable men out there. And, and I think that there definitely is some bad behavior out there on both sides, I think. Right. But, but I think the real truth is there are plenty of amazing high quality men in the world. But if that woman has the belief there aren't any, it's going to make it really hard for her to see them when she sees one. And so, you know, what happened for me, I think, was I had some beliefs. Like one of the things was I thought, you know, I was too young to be able to do anything real in the world, you know. And and of course, that's totally not true. We're now seeing it's absolutely, it's possible. I think one of the biggest YouTube stars in the world is like seven years old. You know, it's like... There, it is absolutely possible to create value and have an impact in the world at any age, just about. And so when I shifted those beliefs, I changed the filter through which I see the world. And then I changed what actions I was prepared to take. Because if you don't believe something is possible, for example, the woman who doesn't believe there are any good men left, if somebody says to her, hey, do you want to go out dancing tonight? Well, if she doesn't believe there are any good men left, why would she want to go dancing? So she doesn't go. And then somebody else says, oh, I've got this really great guy that I'd like you to meet. I'd like you to come on a double date and you can date, you can, you know, it's safe. You can meet him. Well, if she doesn't believe there are any good men left, she's not going to go on that date. So those beliefs have everything to do with A, the way you see the world and B, the decisions you make, the actions you choose. And I think that was a big shift for me at that point at whatever, 21 years old or so. Amazing. So it's like wearing the glasses. If you wear red color glasses, you're going to see the world red. If you're wearing blue, you're going to see the world blue, right? So it depends on what color glasses. Right. But you've got to go a little further because that's a very light version of the metaphor. Think of it another way. You're wearing the, you know, say the rose colored glasses, but you're looking for something green. Right. It's not there anymore. It just isn't there. And that's what happens with beliefs. It's like wearing this filter. I believe there are no good men left in the world, she says. Then she can't see them anymore because she's wearing the wrong glasses. That's the really important thing to get is that it's not just colors that we're filtering out. It's opportunities. It's people. Right. How can entrepreneurs get this kind of clarity, like wearing the right glasses? Especially there's there's a number of ways. You know, obviously, really good mentorship helps a great deal. You know, I was very lucky as a, as a kid around about that same time. I had a lot of things happen in that first, you know, first couple of years of my 20s. But around about that same time, 
I got involved with a family. I kind of almost kind of became a member of this family. My girlfriend was their nanny. And so I got to know the kids very well. And even after she left, I just stayed part of the family. And for the next 10 years, they were a very big influence on me. And one of the things that was interesting is they were at a very different level of wealth than my family. And so I was suddenly able to observe the different types of conversations that they were having and the different ways they thought about money and the different ways they thought about business. They were really entrepreneurial, really entrepreneurial. So it was like a very different psychology that I was learning about. And I remember one day speaking with my pseudo father, I went to him and said, you know, we were just talking about business and stuff. And he came to me and he goes, you know, once you've got a little gray hair, you should come work for me. And I was thinking, I'm never going to have gray hair. I'm, I'm going to be young forever, right? But, but anyway, apparently it happens. But, <laughs> but in any event, he goes, once you've got a little gray hair, you could come work for me. And I go, oh, really? What would that be like? And he goes, well, you know, we're, we're an investment firm. We do stock brokerage and, you know, and, and financial securities and all that kind of stuff. And I said, how much, you know, how much could I make working at your company? And he was like, yeah, I can't remember exactly, but it was about a quarter of a million dollars a year. He was saying the good guys are making a quarter. The really good ones are making more, but a quarter million dollars a year is pretty reasonable. This is 1991. I was like, oh my God, I didn't even know that was possible, right? right? In other words, I was wearing the wrong glasses. I had glasses that told me that wasn't possible. But then he showed me that it was possible, took the glasses off, and then went back to my work where I was having a negotiation with my boss about my commissions and about the way my job worked. And I went to him and we were having this conversation and he wanted to increase the amount of commission percentage I was having versus salary. So he wanted me to be on more commission, less salary. And I just thought, well, you know, I've looked at the numbers and I said, you know what? I'll take no salary. I'll take complete commission, 100%. -hmm. This is the rate that I want, then no salary. And he was looking at that going, wow, then I don't have this regular monthly salary to pay. I'm happy to pay a percentage of the profits. And the next year, I'm 23 years old, I earned $70,000. Like it it blew me, again, 1992 or something, right? I mean, I don't even know what that means in today's money. (laughs) And within the years, I was making a quarter of a million dollars. Wow. I was in my mid-20s. I would say that a big reason that I had that opportunity was that one conversation that I had that let me know that it was possible. And so one of the ways that I think entrepreneurs really need to work on their own beliefs is to hang around with people that have the beliefs they want, right. hang around with people they want. You know, I've been lucky enough to spend a bit of time with Richard Branson here and there. And I got to tell you, wow, like he just, everything's possible. Everything's possible. It's just like, it's just a decision. And he just has a let's do it attitude. And, and that's had a real influence on me. So the more you can spend time with people that have the beliefs that are going to get you where you want to go, I think the better. And what about the resources? Some entrepreneurs say, I want to do it, but I don't have those kind of resources. Well, here's kind of a funny way of thinking about it. You know, I've heard a few different people use this example, but I'll just use it the way I do it. If I'm at a a school talking about business, which I, I do from time to time, there's a young student entrepreneur over here. And then the question is, how different would their life be if I was in their life? What I mean is if I woke up in their body and I had to make the decisions for them or to say to any entrepreneur, even better example, what would it be like if they were in their business with their limited resources, their limited contacts, but Richard Branson woke up in their life and had to start all over again from that position, what would happen? Well, you know, nobody can say for certain, but what I would suggest is that sometimes the lack of resources is a 
obstacle only because we're focused on that. Hmm. Now, I'm not saying that the lack of resources isn't, isn't a problem. I'm just saying that it's a stage. And so one of the problems we have is that if we focus on that entire lack of resources, if we focus on that every day, it's very difficult for us to see the summit of the mountain we're, we're, we're trying to climb here. So sometimes it's just a matter of looking at the right time frame. Like, you know, we think, oh, I have a lack of resources. I'd like to hire somebody, but I can't hire them just now. Well, great. Don't. Find somebody to come and work with you as a partner or maybe just bring somebody in, you know, on a casual basis for a few hours to help you with the project. You don't have to hire them right this minute. So I think that we have to look at the lack of resources and, and be more creative. And by the way, lack of resources can be incredibly helpful. This is a silly example, but I don't know if you're familiar with the movie Jaws, but it was a very famous movie in 1977 about a shark that went on a killing spree. And in fact, many of the people involved in making the movie are regret that the, the author of the book regrets making the movie and other people regret that they did it because it's frightened people so much about sharks that people started killing sharks all over the place. Okay. That said, it's an interesting example in lack of resource. For that movie, they had developed a mechanical shark, uh, like a robotic shark, because they obviously didn't want to have a big, giant, great white shark they had to deal with, right? So they got this mechanical shark. But then the problem was they couldn't get the shark to work. Lack of resources. The shark wouldn't work. And they're making a shark movie, and the shark won't work. And what are they going to do? They have the actors. They have the crew. They're burning through tens of thousands of dollars in an hour, and there's no shark. So they're like, all right, well, we'll just have to come up with some other answers. So in one of the shots, they did this scene where instead of seeing the shark, you saw as the shark. So you saw the image of, the, of what the shark could see. So it changed the angle of the shot a little bit. Then there was another scene where they, oh, damn, shark won't work again. And so, but they needed the shark to be around the ship, but they couldn't get the shark to work. So then they changed the scene and set it up so that they would harpoon the shark with floating barrels so they could keep track of where the shark was and it would stop the shark from diving too deep because he had these big floating barrels harpooned into him. Well, now all they had to do is drag these barrels around the boat and you knew the shark was there, but you never saw the shark. By the way, another movie did that too called Peter Pan. There was a crocodile and the crocodile had a clock in its belly and it always went tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. So you never needed to see the crocodile. You just knew it was there. Well, mm -hmm. here's what's really fascinating about that. I am pretty sure, and I think pretty much anybody in the movie business, or even like, it doesn't even matter. I think anybody who watched the movie would agree that if they were able to make the shark from the beginning, it would have been a much worse movie. But because of the suspense that was built, and they finally did get the shark to work in the final scene, it, it worked, and it made it a phenomenally successful movie. I can give you time and time again examples of this sort of thing, where it was the lack of resources that stimulated the creativity that allowed somebody to build something fantastic. The right. trouble is, is that we have to focus not on the resource which we're lacking, but we have to focus on the solution that we require. Right. So true. Amazing. So you mentioned in the conversation in the year 1991, and I remember reading it that you had some health issues or you had a dramatic recovery in the year 1991. What was it? Was that the reason which led you to WildFit or... Yeah, largely. I had been suffering with a bunch of different problems ranging from out-of-control allergies to sinus infections, chronic throat infections, digestive problems, uh, cystic acne. And I'd been suffering with that stuff for a very long time. And I'd been to see doctors and they'd prescribe you know, this pill and that nasal spray and this injection and all this stuff. 
And then finally, one specialist wanted me to have my tonsils cut out. And I was really, and I, you know, I just, I don't know how to put it. I didn't feel sick. I was just irritated. I was, I'd been sick for so long that I didn't even feel like a sick person. I just thought this is who I am. This is my life. This is the way it is. And then one day I, you know, was inspired by a number of friends to have a a revisit of my relationship with food, which I found interesting because I don't, I didn't think at the time that I had a particularly bad relationship with food. I mean, you know, I eat pizza from time to time. Sure. I might have a, you know, a soft drink here or there, but I wasn't bad about food. I didn't think. And then I made some changes and in 30 days, I was able to turn around conditions that the doctors had not had an impact on in in years. Like I had no kidding for years been to see specialists and got nowhere. And all of a sudden, you know, 30 days later, I've lost 35 pounds or, you know, 15-ish kilos. All of my acne had cleared up and was gone. My throat infections were gone. I didn't need to have a tonsillectomy anymore. All my sinus infections. I mean, basically I I was an entirely new human being. And that inspired in me, I don't know, it just inspired in me a real, first of all, curiosity as to why doctors didn't tell me to look at my food relationship. Like I really was, once I saw how simple it was, I was like, why didn't they just tell me that? Why didn't they? And by the way, the answer is not that they wanted to hold back some great trade secret. It's that nobody taught them. You know, nutrition is not required in a medical training. You don't need to learn about food or nutrition to become a doctor. It's not their fault. It's just, it's a setup of the, of the education system. And so I, I became really passionately curious about that. And I also, even as a kid, I had what I would kind of call a, an overactive empathy. Like if I ever, if ever my friends were in pain or suffering with something, I always really wanted to do something about it. And all of a sudden those two things kind of combined together. And I was like, wow, I see all these people around me that are suffering. They're suffering with weight control problems. They're suffering with allergies. They're suffering with digestive issues. Yeah. And I think that food's the solution to it. And so I started doing research. I just got... I became a total food geek. I was studying everything that I could. And that eventually led to a tough realization. And that is that people don't want to know. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you, you can tell, you can find this person over here who's sick, who just like me, they don't even feel sick. They don't even know they're sick. They just have these issues. And you can go tell them, God, you know, holy, if you just ate more of that and you ate less of that, it would all turn around. And they're like, eh, whatever. And even people who wanted to change would be like that. They like, they'd want to change, but then I'd bump into them three months later and they're sitting having an ice cream. And I'm like, hold on with your condition. Do you really think an ice cream is that, but they're like, yeah, but it's so yummy. And I had, and I worked really hard today and I just, you know, I needed a reward or whatever. And so that's when I started delving into what I would call food psychology. And that is about six years ago, we combined this idea, this science of food psychology with nutritional anthropology and that gave that that kind of gave birth to wildfit that's what started the program and it's just been a roller coaster ever since it's been a phenomenal roller coaster of incredible growth it's been the easiest business that i've ever had all right before i ask you questions about wildfit tell me how did you change your relationship with food like you said your friends advised you and before you got into the research what were the small changes you made on your own Well, you know, at that stage, it was really basic stuff like, you know, not eating refined sugar and processed food and that kind of stuff. And, um, but the real trick isn't about that. Everybody knows that today. I mean, they do. Everybody knows not to eat sugar. They just do it anyway. Everybody knows the refined flour is a bad idea. They do it anyway. You know, most people know that dairy products are, you know, questionable at, at best. And, and so, you know, but they do it anyway. So one of the things that I changed at that point that worked really well for me is that I committed to a short period of time to make the change. 
-hmm. And that allowed me to break a number of addictions. You know, willpower works, but it only is a short-term thing. It's a bit like holding your breath. You can use willpower to hold your breath, but only for so long. Then the body's going to take over. And it's very much the same with food. If somebody uses willpower to not eat sugar, yeah, they can do that for a little while, but the body eventually is going to kick in and go, nope, we're having sugar again until the addiction's broken. And then after that, willpower isn't really needed anymore. And so, you know, that the shift that I had to make at that point is, you know, what really helped me, what really helped me is I was really sick and then I was healthy. And at the end of the day, nothing, nothing tastes as good as healthy feels, nothing. And so when I got healthy like that, I wasn't even tempted to go back to the things that would take my health away because sure, that bowl of ice cream might taste amazing, but it'll taste amazing for five minutes. Right. I get to have this health all the time. Right. So I also sometimes tell my clients for just for your taste buds, you know, you want to enjoy certain foods which are unhealthy, your whole body has to suffer. You know, two inches of tongue will make your six feet body suffer. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. So uh, now tell us more about WildFit. What's the whole program about? How can people enroll in it? Well, I don't want to turn it into a big wildfit commercial. I'll just say this. Um, You (laughs) You can if you want to. (laughs) We want people to stay healthy so they can make better decisions in their business and become more successful. (laughs) That's actually a really good point. A lot of times people ask me, what's the number one thing I can do to really succeed in my business? And I'll go, change your relationship with food. Right. Change your relationship with food. Number one thing you can do to be successful in business. And there's, there's a number of reasons for it. The one is when you are really well hydrated and well nourished and your body's moving and all that kind of stuff, you have better psychology. It's just the way it is. People who are healthy are happier on the whole, on the average, they're happier. They're biochemically happier. In fact, the third most common reported benefit of WildFit in open polls, like, you know, not like in polls that are populated by clients, right? They, the third most commonly reported benefit was improved happiness and ending of depression. Like people felt better emotionally. We would never have guessed that when we created the program. We thought it was all about physical health, but it turns out that if you have physical health, it's a lot easier to have emotional health, mental health. And what's so important about that is as an entrepreneur, your mental health is everything. Your ability to be in a good mood. You don't want to make decisions when you're in a bad mood. Well, every single day you're in a bad mood, is you're going to have to make decisions. Those decisions are going to take you in the wrong direction. Here's a specific example. If somebody is running low energy, They're running low energy because they're not eating well. They're running low energy because they're eating bad things. They're running low energy. When they're running low energy, their body goes into survival mode. In survival mode, you will always take the safe road. In entrepreneurship, if you always take the safe road, you're going to get nowhere. You have to take calculated risks. Absolutely. But when you're low energy, it's really difficult to make to take calculated risks because in low energy, you feel like you're in survival mode. And so you're more inclined to take the safer road. That's one of the problems that a lot of entrepreneurs will have right now during the pandemic is they're so afraid of the future. They're so afraid of the present. They're so afraid of the virus. They're so afraid of the falling economy. They're so afraid of those things that they will start to go into a more negative mindset, a preserving mindset, a secure safety mindset. And then they'll try to start making safe decisions. I'm watching myself do the same thing. I'm trying to be careful of it. The trouble is, is that that means that you're stopping willing to take risks. And here, you know what's really true about these times? Some of the biggest, most valuable companies in the world were started during recessions were started during times when reinvention was required. But if you've got a bad relationship with food, it makes it a lot harder to make those kind of decisions. The second thing is, 
being healthy just means you have more energy to work. It means you're not missing days off sick. It, you just make sense. Oh, third thing I said too, but there's a third thing. What is the point in being phenomenally successful in business and creating all kinds of free time to travel the world or maybe one day exit and be completely free if you've given away your health? What would be the point? What's the point in that? No, we want to make sure that our health is our number one investment. With that in mind, to really answer your question, what we did that's working so well, what, what we've done that's made WildFit so disruptive in the, in the diet space is that people actually do and complete the program. We have something like an 85% completion rate, which in digital education is unheard of. Amazing. The way the program is structured is it, here's the best way I can put it to you. Have you ever read a book where you kind of have to force your way through the book? Have you ever had that? You're like, <laughs> if I don't like yeah, it. <laughs> you just can't finish it, right? But have you ever read a book that pulled you through it? Yes. yes. Right? The difference is the way that we create our programs, we use something called behavioral change dynamics. And those tools make it possible for our programs to pull the clients through. They pull the clients through. So the clients aren't having to like push themselves through. In fact, you're familiar with Valley, so you'll know Vision. Vision is the founder of Valley, And I heard this story from him one day where he said he's driving along in his car and he's listening to the WildFit program on, on MP3. And he hears me come on the radio and he, and, and he, he hears me. Hi, it's Eric. Welcome to day 66 of the WildFit challenge. And then he goes... I've never done anything for 66 days. How is it I'm still here? How am I still doing this? 66 days. Right. And that's because the program is designed to pull people through. And there's a number of steps where, like I've said, we've combined really solid nutritional anthropology with truly transformational food psychology so that by the time somebody's even been two weeks in the program, they already know that the relationship with food will never be the same again, which means they aren't going to have to rely on rules and willpower because those things don't work. I want to be really clear. Anybody who's listening right now, if you've ever failed at a diet, it wasn't you that failed. It was the diet that failed you. What you really have to have is a program that doesn't simply give you a bunch of rules about food, even if the rules are right. right. It's, the program has to deal with deframing the beliefs, the values, the linkages, the manipulations that have been taking place in your psychology since you were small. The weird mistakes your parents made about food that make you feel like you have to finish a plate or that cookies are equal to love. The weird manipulations that the food industry did to bombard you that this food has to be eaten at that holiday time or when you're in a bad mood or when you're having family around. There's all these things that have to be deframed so that we can bring back conscious food decisions. And that's why the program works so well. I think it should be a lifestyle rather than forcing. I think exactly. the program helps them implement it so easily that that becomes their lifestyle. That's what That's exactly right. does. Amazing. So, yeah, I've also heard you talking about all the damage the food industry and the fitness industry is doing. And I'm so, so, so into it. Like I understand it coming from health and wellness industry, being in this industry for nine years. And I know they only want to sell, right? So talk to us a little bit about, you know, fitness and food. Like a lot of people are into exercise and Yes, people do a lot of fate diets and then they fail. They keep trying one after the other and they fail. So what's the relationship between the food and, you know, exercise? Maybe this is a clumsy metaphor, but let's say somebody puts some really bad quality gas in your car. Right. Now you want to get rid of that gas. So you drive the car really fast and far to get that gas out, but it was bad quality gas. 
And then they put some more bad quality gas in the car and you drive it again. Well, you know, eventually you're going to hurt the insides of your car. What I'm saying is, is that exercise without nutrition is a bit like that. So what I see very often is people that are clearly overstimulated and overfed bad calories and they're underfed high quality nutrients. So they're basically starving to death while overeating. And that, by the way, is the majority of the world right now. You got, you know, India is full of that. America is full of that. Right. Every, many places are full of that weird dichotomy where people have too much fuel going in and not enough non-fuel or non-energy nutrients going in. So now, the, particularly the soft drinks industry, they came up with this whole like fitness thing where if you go do the, if you go do the exercise, then you can, if you burn these calories, you can like eat these calories. And it was a way of them justifying because they didn't like this whole like hatred against calories. That's why they started coming out with zero calorie drinks and fake chemical sweeteners and all this stuff. But they also came up with the whole, you can burn it off. You can outrun your diet. You cannot. And there's a number of reasons you can't. The one is, is that the calories in, calories out myth is complete rubbish. But the other reason is, is that if you're putting poor quality fuel in, every time you're exercising, you're just like that car that's driving with bad quality gas. Only it's worse than that because the car is simply burning the bad quality gas and you might be burning, hurting the filters or the pistons or whatever. But humans are different. We don't just burn the gas. We use some of our food to rebuild our body. Right. So now you've got somebody going out and doing an incredible bunch of exercise so they can justify having a big plate of cream pasta and a bowl of ice cream for dessert. Well, wait a second now. Since you are literally what you eat, what you're going to do is go do all this exercise. Now, while your body's in rebuilding mode, you're right. going to put that in and force your body to try to build you out of that garbage. So exercise is not a path to health, but exercise can make you healthier. Food, water, air, that's the path to real health. Food, water, air, basic movement, sunlight, healthy sleep, basic paths to health. Then healthier comes from exercise, flexibility training, strength training, endurance training. Right. So basically what our ancestors were doing, we need to go back to what our ancestors were doing. With the evolving technology and sedentary lifestyle, people think sitting eight hours or 10 hours working and then going to the gym for an hour is good enough, right? But I think mobility is more important than just going to the gym for an hour. So how important it is to eat traditionally? Well, this is where we get a little tricky. It depends on what you mean by traditionally. So for example, Ayurveda. Yeah. It seems like that's fairly traditional, right? I mean, that's traditional. And we're talking 5,000, 6,000 years of tradition. The trouble is, is that um, species evolution, there's this sort of idea, call it evolutionary velocity. And it's really slow. And you measure things like lifespan, breeding cycles, gestation periods, how many children they have, and something called selective pressure. In other words, how difficult it is to live. The more difficult it is to live, the higher the velocity of, of the higher the, the mutation velocity, the, the, the more the species will change to adapt. Now, the reason I put all this to you is that sapiens, we're about a 300,000 year old animal. Like we're, we've been around for about 300,000 years. So even something as traditional as, as Ayurveda is only an hour in a, in a you know, it's only, it's only a couple of hours in the 50 year old's life. It's, it's actually not that old. I know it is old. I know it's solid nutrition. And by the way, I'm a big fan. I like it. There are just some things that are violating human tradition, for example. 
one is this. If you really were to eat totally traditionally, according to Sapiens, 99% of our history, nobody would ever have milk. They right. just wouldn't do that. And of course, milk is an important aspect of Ayurveda in certain cases. If you know, I can't remember if it's Vita Pitta Pat, I can't remember which ones it is, but there's like, if you need to sleep at night, then a warm glass of milk. Yeah. Okay. But you know what? I don't even disagree with that. I think that there are certain things that in small quantities for a specific reason might not be so bad, but if you were having them all the time, they might become a problem. And I think milk may be one of those. I'm not a big fan of it myself. So my feeling is this. We should be doing as best we can to be totally traditional. That is right. sapiens traditional. And then we can then learn from some of the more recent traditions and apply some of those things potentially as hacks, but I wouldn't want to make them full lifestyle changes. Right. It's interesting. I mean, what you said just now is true. By tradition, I also mean like we are culturally different, right? Now we are living in Singapore, so culture here is completely different. We don't have any regional or seasonal produce. Everything is yeah. just flown in from neighboring countries. But for human body to eat regional and seasonal to stay healthy becomes, you know, very important. So we always keep debating this. How do we do this? Because we are in Singapore and there's no fresh produce. So by tradition, I meant was depending on where you're living, which region you're living, what is grown in that country. If you eat that, would that help you more? No, I, I'll give you a great example. It's silly, but it's fun. Imagine that you and I and a bunch of our friends got on a spaceship right. and we were going to another planet. We wouldn't be able to eat any of that food that's on that planet. So we would have to bring our food with us, right? Like, I mean, we can't just assume that we can eat the food from that planet. It's a totally different planet. We didn't evolve a relationship with it. We, we can't do that. So we would have to bring food and arguably we'd have to bring seeds and we'd have to bring our own soil because we don't know what the soil's like. We'd really have to bring the ecosystem with us. Now, we're not so different than that. We are all Africans. Every single one of us is originally African. We, okay. that, sapiens comes from Africa. And we spent the vast majority of our evolution in Africa and then India. And we've been in North America for a blink of an eye comparatively. And so when we talk about this idea that, well, I should eat regionally, I don't think so at all. I think that somebody lives in America who eats corn because corn is regional. That's a problem. Humans yeah. aren't meant to eat corn. It's not a natural human food. And so I don't think that it's so important that you eat within the seasons or the tradition of where you're living. I think what's much more important is that you eat within the seasons and the tradition of where you evolve, which is Africa or old, or old world. And, 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 you know, so that's Africa, Middle East, even into Southern Asia, that whole old world is where the very, in my opinion, where the very best vegetables are from and the very best fruits and that kind of stuff. The minute we start eating the plants that come, say, from the Americas, which is the newest of the worlds, you know, from a human perspective, then we start creating problems. And by the way, we know this. Nightshade plants are not ideal. We already know that. We know that the plants from South America are more likely to cause allergies, irritation, and that sort of stuff than the plants from the old world. So it's not so much about fitting in with your local tradition. I think it's more a matter of fitting in with human tradition. Uh, amazing. Oh, my God. Such insightful stuff. Eric, uh, tell us three business rules you follow to be successful. Wow. Three business rules that I follow to be successful. You know, I think one of them is do what you say you're going to do. 
I think that's really important. In fact, in my world, the way I, I do that is I, it's not all, I, I, you know, very often I'm creative and I'm in the moment and I want to do something. And so I, in my life, I created a rule and the rule is that I just keep promises. So I absolutely intend to do what I'm, you know, if I say to you, I'm going to do that by Thursday, I mean that I really intend to do it by Thursday. But if I say to you, I promise I'm going to do that by Thursday, then there's no doubt at all. And I think that your own word and your own integrity and your ability to keep a promise is a massive thing in business. I think that's one. I think the other one is really focus heavily on incremental improvement all the time. It means like every time something doesn't work the way you wanted it to or could be improved a little bit, that you need a system for tracking those things and not just fixing them in the moment, but tracking them so that you can look at them over time and really work on incrementally improving the processes in your business, improving the products and, and all that sort of stuff. And geez, one more. There's so many. I mean, you can have you know, more than three if you want to. <laughs> I think that the, uh, the next one is that everything is about people. And so maybe this isn't one, maybe it's a few bundled together, but it's like really truly recruit and bring in the very best people really truly recruit and bring in the very best people. I think that that's, crucial. And then I think that along the lines of that, it means not always recruiting people that are just like you. It's really tempting to hire people that are like you because you like them. You know, I like that person because they're like me. But then now you've got somebody who wants to do the same jobs that you want to do and doesn't want to do the same jobs you don't want to do. And that's not really helpful. So you need people with a variety of personalities that like doing different things. And then you know, let's call this, that was 3A, 3B. And <laughs> yes, C. please go ahead. <laughs> 3C is really take care of them. Right. You know, make sure that they know that you're there for them and support them as best you can. I, I will never forget, I was at home one day 20 years ago running my business and I got a phone call from one of my employees and she told me that she had a husband and he had a son, not hers. And the son had come to live with them from the mother for a while. And then all of a sudden the police were knocking on the door and they wanted to take the child back to the mother. And so they called me and asked me what to do. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know. But you know what? I wanted to help. And they were low income. They were living in low income housing. They'd both been unemployed for seven years before they came to work for me. And they said, don't, they're not super educated. They don't really understand their rights at all. So they're freaking out with the police at the door. I drive over. I get to the house. I walk past the two policemen. I, I introduce myself. I, I'm their employer. I'm just coming to see if they're okay. Because I, I told them on the phone, don't let the police in the house. And they're like, we can stop them from being in the house. I'm like, totally. If they don't have a warrant to come in the house, you can't they can come in the house. So anyway, I, uh, I went into the house and I spoke to them. And then I found out what was going on. The mother had changed her mind and wanted the child back and called the police. And the police came down, but there was no court order or anything. So I went out to talk to the police and I go, excuse me why exactly are you guys here? And they're like, well, cause the mother called and they went and I go, but, but does she have like a child protection order or a warrant or any kind of, any kind of anything at all that allows you to come and take the child? No. I said, so you can't take the child. No. So why are we all here together? And they're like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> and then <laughs> I said, would it help you if I brought Dwayne out and you could meet him? And you could see that he was happy and he was healthy and safe. Would that be good? And they're like, yeah, we'd appreciate that. So I brought him out and he loved talking to the cops. And, you know, it was really scary, but exciting. And, and then they were happy to see that he was happy and healthy and they walked away and left. And, but here's the question. How much loyalty did that create in those, in those two members of my staff to be there for them and to support them? 
And I, and I, I think that as an employer, I really believe that the more you can have that attitude, and, and maybe I can sum it up like this. Treat your employees the way you want them to treat each other. Treat your managers the way you want them to treat the employees. Treat all your employees the way you want them to treat the customer. Amazing. I think this is missing part in today's world. The humanity, the compassion, the kindness is, you know, going on toss somewhere. So when you were talking about hire people who are smart, it reminded me of Steve Jobs. He used to say, hire people who are smarter than you are. So you can make money, you know, let them do what they are passionate about. And it's true. But there's one thing I want to add to that, because I think sometimes that's like a platitude. There are people who say that like, oh, I always try to hire people smarter than me. And I know that they're incredibly smart. Like the idea that you're hiring somebody smarter than you is like not, it's not genuine sometimes. So here's the way I would put it is hire people that are smarter than you, that have greater skills than you that are better than you in specific areas. So right. here's a really good example. In our company, I, I'm pretty diverse with my skills. I'm talented at what I do on stage. I'm good at the storytelling and speaking. I'm good at, uh, at delivering video training programs. I'm good at designing the video training programs and so on. And I'm relatively good at technology and, and how the websites should be built and stuff. But notice the difference. The first three, I would say that I possess world-class skills in those areas. In the other area, I'm quite smart about it, but I am not the most talented. I'm not the most knowledgeable. Right. And so what have I done? I've gone out and put together a team, particularly. And then by the way, am I the best at putting together a team? No, I'm really not. So what did I do? I went and found somebody who knows that stuff, who wants to learn that stuff and is good at putting together a team. And so we hired Andrea and that completely transformed our business. Right. So it's not so much, I, I wouldn't want to you know, get into some conversation about is Andrea smarter than me or am I smarter than Andrea? I'm going to put it this way. I'll bet there's areas where I'm smarter than her and I'll bet there's areas where she's smarter than me. And as long as those areas are different, we're putting together a good team. True. I think it makes sense because if you hire people who are smarter than you, slowly you will get into that insecurity zone, you know, that somebody is going to steal the idea and run away with your business and stuff. Absolutely makes sense. Amazing. I can go on and on with you, you know, because you have so many businesses, you have so much experience, 20 years of experience, two decades of experience here, but we are running out of time. So I want to ask you one thing. What about entrepreneurs or solopreneurs who don't have team? What advice would you give them how to scale up? Well, you know, it's, it's, there's a number of different ways to do that. The one is, is that you, you, you know, one is through partnership, you know, find somebody else who wants to be involved in the business and wants to be a partner. And now you, you, you have two people that are working and, and not necessarily having to pay them because they're coming in as a partner. Right. Uh, the other way is to recognize that when you're hiring people, you don't actually have to hire them full time. You don't even have to hire them part time. You can hire them on a project by project basis. Right. Also, in many countries, there are internship programs where you can apply to the government and they will actually place an intern with you and pay for the intern's first three months working with you in the hopes that that will stimulate a job at your company. So right. there's a number of different ways to make that kind of thing happen. I think that the core thing is this. Too often, solopreneurs are too busy to get somebody to help them. Right. So the answer to that is that long before you even think about how to hire somebody, whether it's full-time, part-time, you know, whether it's intern, I don't really care. Long before you even think about that, you should be developing systems and written procedures for everything that happens in your company. 
Because what happens is that people suddenly, they're so busy, they want to get some help. But then they want to bring somebody in, but they have to train them. And it's like forever to train them. They're like, oh my God, I don't have time to train them. I don't have time for this. Wait a minute. If everything that person needed to do was written out, documented really nicely, audited, then when you train them, it would be a matter of bringing them in and going, here, do this. Let me know if you have any questions. The training becomes unbelievably easy. And so long before that solopreneur, the mompreneur decides to branch out and start hiring people, what that person should be doing is collecting everything as a procedure. Anything that they have to do more than once, just bullet points, write them down and start putting together a procedures manual. Now, when you want to hire somebody, you can just go, here's how you do it. Right. That's amazing. And that way they can also escape burnout. So your business, business freedom helps entrepreneurs and solopreneurs do this as well? Yeah. I mean, the the entire model of business freedom was built on the idea that I started my first business. And after six years, I didn't have to go to work anymore. I had 35, maybe 40 employees. I didn't need to be there. The business ran smoothly without me. And that's business freedom. That's where you really, you know, that's where you, you recognize that entrepreneurship is basically today's version of royalty. If you do it correctly, you can live a life of almost leisure if you want, or you can go create the next thing. It's, that's what business freedom is about. And I think that what we do is we take people, what our, what our business does, it takes people through the step-by-step process of building a business that as that company gets bigger, it's not taking more of your time. You know, generally people have that backwards. The bigger the business gets, the busier they're getting. Right. What really should happen is the bigger the business gets, the more freedom they should be getting. And how, how long is the program for? Is there a time duration or... It's an ongoing. Uh, we have a number of programs. We have a we have a five day business school program, and then we have a year long digital training program that takes people through that five days of content over the space of a year. They right. go every single month. They're working on one area of the business, and there's weekly videos that take them through each step. So by the end of the year, they should really have a major difference in their level of freedom. And then we have a mastermind where people can join and go through the education, but also every single month be on mastermind calls to problem solve, come up with ideas, brainstorm, and so on. Amazing. Great information. I'm going to put all, the, all that in the show notes. Please tell our listeners where can they find you if anybody wants to get in touch with you. You know, one of the easiest ways is Instagram, at Eric Edmeads on Instagram. I manage my own Instagram account. So if you write to me, if you get a reply, I can't always reply to everybody, but if you do get a reply from me, it's me personally. You can also find me at www.eric.ee. Okay, I'm going to put that in show notes. So anybody who wants to get in touch with you can just click the link. And trust me, guys, he personally replied to me. When I messaged him to be a guest on our podcast today, he was very, 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 very obliged and humbled. And he accepted my request. I don't have words to thank him enough. And the knowledge and amount of information and wisdom you have, I don't think one episode is enough. We will definitely have you at least, you know, once every three months to share more and more (laughs) and help people who are behind, you know, you, not us. I can't say us. I always tell entrepreneurs, there are always going to be people who are ahead of you. And there are always people who are behind you. So get inspired from people who are ahead of you and create an impact who are behind you. So we need more inspiring entrepreneurs like you for aspiring entrepreneurs. (laughs) Thank you, Eric for coming on our show. It was complete. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. Do you know 
fragrance remains in the hands that gives rose would you please share this episode with your entrepreneur friends so we can help each other escape burnout increase productivity and achieve our goals faster also let me know what topics you want me to cover in our future episodes at info@bodymindsolution.com would you please take a moment to rate and review this show that would mean the world to me and yes don't forget to subscribe this is your host kk until next time take care bye bye